Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Dorothea Lange and Ansel Adams are two of the most well-known photographers of the 20th century. Lange humanized American struggle for economic and social justice through her documentary photographs, while Adams' landscapes spurred uh, environmental protections of the wild places of the American West. These two household names uh, already had uh, defined a Western uh, portraiture and landscape when they came together to undertake a venture to photograph the changing ways of life in three Mormon towns. So in 1953, they came together, photographed Gunlock, Tokerville, and St. George. Mark Hedengren has uh, updated this book, presented those uh, to us again with a foreword by Mary Ellen Mark, one of the most prominent photographers in America today. Mark Hedengren and Mary Ellen Mark will join us to talk about this project, which turned out to be Adams and Lang's last. A lot of drama following the news. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Syria's foreign minister says his country has accepted a plan advanced by Russia to put all of Syria's chemical weapons under international control. The plan has gotten initial support from U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, and the White House says it will take a hard look at it. Secretary of State John Kerry is testifying before the House Armed Services Committee now. He urged lawmakers to back the president's call for military action in Syria to keep the pressure on. He also reassured them the U.S. will not send in ground troops. There will be no American boots on the ground. Let me repeat, no American boots will be on the ground. Senator John McCain says the diplomatic effort to prevent a U.S. military strike against Syria should be given time to play out. But as NPR's Dave Mattingly reports, McCain says he is not convinced Moscow's proposal is genuine. McCain says Russia's proposal that Syria relinquish its chemical weapons stockpile as a way to avoid U.S. military action should be examined by all sides. Put me down as extremely skeptical, but to not pursue this option would be a mistake. But the Arizona Republican tells CBS this morning he's not convinced the Syrian regime would follow through on Moscow's plan, even as Syria's foreign minister says he accepts it. Dave Mattingly, NPR News, Washington. Meanwhile, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell has announced he'll vote against a resolution authorizing military force in Syria. He says there is no vital risk to national security. House Speaker John Boehner, who supports action, told reporters today many Americans do not support the president's call, and thus he must make a stronger case to them. Obama speaks to the nation tonight. The Congressional Gold Medal is being presented posthumously today to victims of the 1963 Birmingham church bombing in Alabama. NPR's Bracton Booker says House and Senate leaders will participate in the ceremony. The gold medal is the highest expression of national appreciation Congress can give. It's being awarded to the four little girls, Denise McNair, Addie Mae Collins, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley, who died in a 1963 bombing at Birmingham's 16th Street Baptist Church as they attended Sunday school. The medal is being awarded in part to recognize how their deaths served as a catalyst for the civil rights movement. Top leadership from the House and Senate are scheduled to take part in the event on Capitol Hill, which comes five days before the 50th anniversary of the attack. Bracton Booker, NPR News, Washington. A court in India has convicted four men for gang raping and murdering a young woman last December on a bus. The attack was so brutal, doctors removed some of her internal organs to try to save her, but she died. The men are now eligible for the death penalty. On Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 112 points at 15,175. This is NPR. 
Support for NPR comes from CSX, whose trains move a ton of freight nearly 450 miles on one gallon of fuel to help reduce fuel consumption. CSX, how tomorrow moves. I'm Carrie Bringhurst. In news this hour, police in Salt Lake in the suburb of Murray are continuing to investigate the shooting deaths of two teenage boys that happened over the weekend. It was at a home in Murray on Saturday night where police officers found 13-year-old Ashton Peck and 15-year-old Andrew Nelson, each with a single gunshot wound. The detective Jeff Maglish says Peck was dead by the time paramedics arrived, but Nelson was still breathing and was rushed to a hospital. He died Sunday night. Investigators are still trying to determine what happened, but they believe the teenagers who were best friends and neighbors were the only people involved. Both teens were shot with the same gun that belonged to Nelson's parents. The Mormon Church-owned Polynesian Cultural Center in Hawaii is celebrating its 50th anniversary. The Polynesian-themed park on the north shore of Oahu, Hawaii, was opened in 1963. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints created that event to promote the Polynesian culture as well as provide work for students at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. More than 5,000 Mormons are traveling to Hawaii this week to celebrate, including alumni who worked there years ago, some in their 70s. The park's website says more than 33 million people have visited that center during the past 50 years. Human rights activist John Prendergast will be in Salt Lake City on Wednesday to deliver a free lecture on the evolving conflicts and realities on the ground in Africa. Prendergast is a former director for African Affairs at the National Security Council, as well as co-founder of the watchdog organization Enough Project, and he worked at the White House under President Bill Clinton. Prendergast's lecture titled A Changing Africa will be delivered at the Libby Garden Hall in Salt Lake. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Dorothy Lange and Ansel Adams are two of the most well-known photographers of the 20th century, of course. Lange humanized American struggles for economic and social justice through her documentary photographs, while Adams' landscapes uh, spurred environmental protection of the wild places of the American West. These two household names uh, had already defined Western uh, portraiture and landscape when Adams and Lang undertook a joint venture to document the changing ways of life in three Mormon towns. And uh, we have a book compilation, includes original pictures by Lang and Adams and highlights the importance of the project through a new essay by Mary Ellen Mark, one of the most prominent photographers of uh, America today. Uh, this collaboration between these two famous photographers proved to be their last. There were artistic and political differences. It's a fascinating story, just the making of these photographs, which were taken in 1953 for publication in Life magazine in 1954. And that did happen. Mark Hedengren has uh, gone back and uh, produced this book. Interesting uh, photos, a forward by Mary Ellen Mark, an uh, essay by uh, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, and uh, Mark Hedengren has an MFA from Glasgow School of Art, BFA from Brigham Young University, and he's with Getty Images Global Assignments. Welcome to the program, Mark Hedengren. It's good to be here. Mary Ellen Mark will join us uh, by telephone from her studios in about uh, eight or nine minutes. 
We'll look forward to that. Uh, Mark Hendren, uh, how did this project begin for you? Well, my first book was called The Mormons, and with that book I photographed um, Mormons around the world. And when I was coming close to the end of production on that, I, I learned about this Ansel Adams and Dorothy Lang's Three Mormon Towns. And I was just fascinated that a subject that I had spent two years with was um, done by such two prominent photographers. I mean, photographers that I had looked at since I started in the field. And I just couldn't wait. I just remember when I learned about it that night, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. And the very next day, I drove down to St. George to go and re-photograph there and to see what it was like. And the three Mormon towns were St. George, Tokerville, and Gunlock. Yeah, people, of course, I think will be familiar with St. George, but Gunlock is a small town just about 20 minutes, 20 minutes outside of St. George, and Tokerville is about 30 minutes north of St. George. They're both wonderful towns. All and uh, as, as you write, and I think Senator Reid writes as well, um, the landscape, the climate, the people have an indelible impression on anyone who grew, grows up in the Southwest. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, if you go to St. George, I mean, you're immediately struck by the pride the local residents have for living there. They're very proud. They all, they know the St. George song, and they're and you know it's a is a they should be. It's a very unique place to be living, and they're very privileged to be living there. This project uh, for Life Magazine, I, I think um, this is an idea that Dorothea Lang had. Oh yeah, no, Dorothea Lang. This this project was very important to her. Dorothea Lang was the first uh, woman to receive a Guggenheim Fellowship, which of course is like the top award in art uh, for any medium. I mean, poetry, whatever. And she, for that project, she wanted to do Amorites, Mennonites, and Mormons in Southern Utah. She called it three utopian communities. But she, but World War II happened, so she couldn't really pursue it. And then she had severe stomach ulcers. And uh, three Mormon towns, uh, she had severe stomach ulcers for nine years, so she couldn't photograph. And three Mormon towns was the first photograph, first body of work she did after her illness. Mm. Uh, situate Dorothea Lang for us, if if you would. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I was curious. I'm sure that I had seen some of her photographs. I, I pulled up Migrant Mother, one of her most famous. Oh, one of the most photo, famous photographs of all time. Uh, photo, photographs. This is a, uh, a woman. Oh, you know. The, Youngish, but uh, perhaps middle-aged, or perhaps it's it's the hard life that's uh, that's uh, you know sort of chiseled away at her. And she's got a couple of children with her black and white, uh, very striking photograph. But uh, tell us, talk a little bit about Dorothea Lang. Well, Dorothea Lang, she's primarily known for the work she did during the Great Depression. In fact, if you see an image of the Great Depression, there's about one in five, or maybe fifty-fifty chances hers. Uh, she uh, she did an incredible body of work for the government during that time. She took one photograph in particular, Migrant Mother, which is the most reproduced and copied photograph almost ever. And, um, yeah, no, she really embodied that time. But more than that, she really defined kind of portraiture and uh, documentary and set a lot of the standards that we use commonly within American, uh, in American photography then, and really distinguished us from European. Yeah. And Ansel Adams is known today more for his landscapes. And, of course, he had a big impact. Um, but I think this this book highlights his portraiture as well. Oh, yeah. Well, Ansel Adams is a very a fascinating character and very multifaceted. He has a national forest named after him right outside Yosemite National Park. And he, um, yeah, of course he's known for his landscapes, but he also had a very strong interest in documentary because back then Life magazine had a circulation of 20 million. I mean, it was a really powerful entity, and there were a lot of kind of rock star photographers becoming famous through it. So he wanted to be connected with that field, and he used Dorothea Lang as kind of his gateway into that. Mm. And, yeah. 
And we'll get into the talking a little bit more with the, when we get Mary Ellen Mark on on the line. She knew Ansel Adams, I believe. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think one of her one of the things she, one of the reasons she's interested in this project, she wanted to bring this other side of Ansel Adams to to light. Uh, so uh, before we get uh, Mary Ellen Mark on on the phone here, I want to go back to your interest. Uh, what was your purpose in in doing the Mormons? What what, what was what did you want to do? I think because maybe some similar aims that Dorothea Lang had going into this. Yeah, well, no, it's, I I've just really I've noticed like Mormons are generally depicted with some sort of an agenda, one way or the other, and I just wanted to depict them as people. And it was, I mean, you know, it was really a very enjoyable project to do. So three Mormon towns is the same thing. Mm-hmm. I think um, people coming from. Uh, well, people coming from different backgrounds, um, you know, they try to focus in on something and, you know, don't see it for your dollars. But, I mean, honestly, like, I lived in Europe for about three years, and then I lived in New York City for a while. And it's funny, when I came back to Utah, I really be- – it gave me the ability to see Utah like a foreign country. Like, I could see what was unique about it. But I think because I was from here, I was born here and raised here, that I didn't have the same sort of, like, agenda or, you know – trying to or just seeing one side of it i saw it very deeply because i grew up with it so yeah now when you came back and you, you saw it afresh what what did you notice that... well i mean there's all sorts of things i mean just the mountains and the landscape it's like i couldn't stop staring at it when i came back whereas i didn't even notice it when i grew up here and um children like just being in costco and seeing a boatload of kids is especially after being in uk for a while that that really struck me kind of the family oriented culture and things like that yeah we're now joined on the line uh, from her studios i believe a prominent uh, american photographer mary ellen mark welcome to the program oh thanks thank you so uh, how did you come to this project well um i was asked to be uh, a part of it yeah I, I was kind of very surprised and um actually honored actually um Mark uh, contacted me and asked me if I would write a piece for the book. Mark, why did you select Mary Ellen Mark? What well, did you, think you, you know, it's funny. I don't know if I've ever even told Mary Ellen this. Like, I was working on the project. I was working on the book. And I thought, who would be the absolute best person to write a forward to this book? I was like, Mary Ellen Mark. I mean, that's obvious. She's the most prominent documentary photographer working now. And uh, she, she's done a lot of work with the United States, and um, as these two did. And so I, I just, I didn't even really think it would work, you know. So I just wrote her a letter and asked her, and she said yes. And I was very <laughs> grateful she did. Yeah. And then you, uh, Ms. Mark, you, you did a lot of research for this. Yeah, I did a lot of research <clears throat> because I'm certainly not a scholar. I mean, I'm a photographer, but so I just wanted to, I didn't want to sound stupid. <laughs> so I did do a lot of research. And I, there's been, of course, a lot written about Ansel Adams and Dorothy Lang, but actually very little about about three Mormon towns. I mean, it was sort of um, not, uh, the piece isn't very well known because it was uh, kind of, it ran in life and then it sort of got buried. Mm. It was mysteriously ran in life because of the credits involved in the piece. I mean, no one really was clear about who did what picture. And and, uh, so it wasn't that well known a piece. And all the people that were involved in the, you know, with the piece when it was published and are no longer living. So there was no one I could really talk to. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about uh, your, I guess your admiration. I guess most photographers would have an admiration for these two great photographers. What, uh, when you think of Dorothea Lange, what do you, what do you think? Well, when you think of Dorothea Lange, you think of you know, her iconic images, um, 
the, the you know the migrant worker, and you think of the man in the bread line, and the pictures that we all know that she's so famous for. You know the FSA work, and you know the work that she did during that period. What most surprised me was Ansel's work because you know we think of him as a landscapist, but he was far more than that. I mean. I said in the piece that I think his best work is yet to be discovered. Mm. Um, he took incredible portraits that have influenced so many people <clears throat> and influenced them today. And also, he was he took some great street photographs. And in the book is a, a photograph that I found that was taken in the 40s. It's amazing. It was a large format photograph that he took, which is really beautiful. Um, so there's a vast amount of his work that is really not known. It's you, remarkable. You, you knew Ansel Adams. I, I, I did. I didn't know him well, but I mean, yeah. I taught at his workshop in Carmel, and um, also uh, a workshop that he taught at Yosemite. So I knew he was a lovely person. Now, as this project, Three Mormon Towns, went along, there were some differences between these two great photographers. Uh, you, you did a little research, talked to some people who who knew them. What uh, what was the relationship like between, in general, between well, Dorothy and Well, it was sort of a love-hate relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that I, uh, mostly love, but but there was, uh, I think Dorothy Lang was not, a, you know, she was a very intense uh a passionate uh, woman, and and she wasn't the easiest person to to get along with. But, but and Ansel was a more laid back and, and sort of easygoing, and and he was very patient and kind with her. And he was a great friend. I mean, all of us would love to have Ansel as a friend because he fixed her cameras and developed her film, and he was just there. He was solid, and he remained a solid and true friend. They were very different personalities, and you know, I. I went through some of the correspondence that they had over the years, even after this event. They remained friends after this event. I mean, this, this working on this project had its ups and downs with them, but they still remained very, very close, and they corresponded, and, and you could just see that he just loved being in nature. He wasn't a traveler, but she wanted to travel the world and be a great documentary photographer. He was just happy to stay at home and photograph in his you know, backyard even, or photograph the mountains. You know, they're very different personalities. Skipping ahead a little bit, we'll, we'll track back, but uh, you, you have a passage in your foreword that, that I hadn't known about. Uh, you know, many others in the photography world maybe would have. Uh, at the end of her life, as she was dying, yes. she allowed Ansel Adams to take some, some, some very powerful photos of her. Beautiful portraits that he took of her. Um, and she showed him her vulnerable side which she didn't show very many people. I mean, she was, she did have a very strong, vulnerable side, Dorothy Lang, but you didn't see it very much. I mean, um, but in this portrait that he took of her when she was very sick, um, you can see her. And I think she knew she was dying, and and he knew she was dying. And and, uh, it's a beautiful portrait, very touching, moving portrait that he did of a woman that he loved, and she loved him. I guess this would be symbolic of the relationship that they, they did have. Yeah, a trusting relationship, yeah. really. Uh, so back to three Mormon towns. Of course, you uh, in a, you know in a Mormon town of that area, you'd, you'd need to get permission from the uh, from the Mormon authorities. Uh, Dorothea Lang, uh, you know, she mentioned an exhibit. She never mentioned apparently that uh, this would end up in Life magazine, and uh, I think Ansel Adams had a problem with that. 
he was, yes, that upset him. But, you know, on the other hand, he never mentioned it either. <laughs> so, I mean, to the people. So, um, it's curious. But then I think when it came out that it was and that people were, were so upset, it, it just reinforced his feelings. But at the same time, he could have said something, too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He didn't. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but in guilt. Words, I think he was yeah. guilty and that he hadn't mentioned it. So he, he was he was very honest soul, very direct and honest man. So do you think this was directly calculating on Dorothy Lange's part? Well, if, she was more calculating than yeah, him for sure, yeah. I think, you know. But you know, she just wanted to get her story, she wanted to get the pictures. And she knew if she said this is to be published in life that, that she'd have some resistance because the people were very private. You know, they didn't want publicity. And especially at that time, being in life was a big deal. So, so she knew it wasn't the smartest thing to do. And, you know, I think most, many photographers would, would have thought the same thing and done the same thing. You know. And there there was reaction, uh, especially the, the residents of Tokerville. We, I guess the, they were described, the town was described as a, a dying town, something yeah, like that. Yeah, they didn't like that. Yeah. Yeah. Was it a dying town? Um, no, they would say definitely not. In fact, actually, after the book has come out, I got a, I got a phone call from the guy who was the son of the Bishop of Tokerville, and he said his mother was one of the people who kind of organized the letter-writing campaign, and he said uh, he they really felt that they looked like they were portrayed as Ma and Pa Kettle. Those right. are her exact <laughs> words. Yeah. Uh, so they, they took objection to that. Big time, yeah. yeah. Well, because the Mormon community was was quite sophisticated in a sense, and and I don't think they liked being looked upon as being old fashioned or, you know, yeah, you know, they thought that they were being looked down on. Mark, what what was the reaction from the other two towns? Uh, well, Gunlock it was it was similar across the board, and Ansel he gave photographs. In fact, he this man who the son of the Bishop of Tokerville was in possession of some Lang prints that were given to her. I think given to them as kind of a consolation, you know, trying to make amends. And uh, same thing with um, Ansel Adams; he gave a number of prints to people in Gunlock. Mm-hmm. Do they have them today? Like, yeah, they do. Yeah. Mm. That's a uh, prized possession. So yeah. some think, of them yeah. are a part of the exhibit we have in the St. George Museum of Art right now. Yeah. But you know what? I, I don't know whether. Well, I heard. I don't know whether it's true that in auctions that you can buy some of the not known Ansel Adams pictures, like the portraits and things like that, for very little money. It's the landscapes that go for a lot of money. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Marilyn Mark, what what do you think as you look at these photographs? What it what do you think that Dorothea Lang and Ansel Adams were going for? What, what was their goal, do you think? Well, I think they were just taking the pictures they take. I mean, I don't think they, they were thinking, oh, I'm going to portray these people as being like old-fashioned and quaint. I don't think that was on their mind. They just were, were looking at the world as they saw it. I mean, I think you can also tell more or less who took what picture. Certainly the pictures that are more technical are, are Ansel's because he, he was technical. And it's interesting because he had the ability, which is what I admire about him. He could make a picture out of anything, do you know, because he had this brilliant technique. Whereas with Dorothy Lange, she she had to find something and then she'd make a picture out of it. That's the difference. I think when you look at the projects that they did on the Japanese camps, you can see that. And I'm looking at a picture. uh, You mentioned this in your foreword, Marilyn Mark. Um, you talk about a, a photo uh, titled "An Electrician." Is, is that is that from? Um, and is, I think is it's from from, from Manzanar. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. I have the book in front of me. I have to. Yeah, this is, and I don't think it's in the book, but but you just mentioned this in passing in, in your forward, and I, I've got it up here on in yeah. Google Images. Uh, striking photographs, and they both at different times uh, photographed this this internment camp. Very different photographs. They did, and and Anson was kind of put down by Dorothea because she she thought that he, you know, he was kind of making it glamorous. But I don't think that. I mean, I think he loved people, and he tried to. He did try and make them look beautiful, but that was just the way he saw things. But, I mean, his pictures are very different than, than, than hers. I mean, his pictures are more heroic. Mm. He, he, he saw a man as a mountain. It was heroic. But they're beautiful. Um, I mean, this is still life called One Son, Robert of the Yonemitsu family, is in the U.S. Army. And it's just a beautiful still life. I mean... They're, they're, they're just, he just knew how to how to monumentalize everything and make people look beautiful. Whereas her her photographs um, are, are caught moments. It's different, and and you know some of them are, are just pure doc- documentation, not really uh, epic great pictures. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I believe they did, they had what you might call political differences. Uh, Dorothea Lange felt that Ansel Adams should be more. Uh, make political statements in his photographs, which, which he... But he was political in a way. Yeah. He was a naturalist. He was an environmentalist. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, that was his politics. And, and he, he was very political about that. And he had a great effect. He had a great effect. Yeah. So they were political in different ways. I mean, maybe that's... I mean, in a way, I think she was a bit of a tease. She liked to tease him about, you know, being, you know, you know conservative or whatever. And he wasn't really. But mm-hmm. it would, you know... They, they actually had a, a, a very loving relationship through it all. You know, it was like a love-hate, but mostly love relationship, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, they're not around to defend it, but, yeah. Yeah. you know. Yeah, if you, you know, you'd read the letters, and uh, especially this, you know, when he went to photograph her at the end of her life, that would seem to be evidence in... in oh, yeah, that, that picture yeah. that, that he took of her at the end of her life, I think that says it all yeah. about what he felt about her and what she felt about him. You know, I mean, Mark, what do you think? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think Adams had a, a tremendous capacity to love. I mean, you look at that time, and there are a lot of difficult personalities, and he yeah. was unique in that he was friends with everybody. Everybody um, loved him. Everybody. You know, yeah. I, I, basically, when I have to say, after working on this project, I kind of fell in love with him myself. Mm. You know, <laughs> he just was such a kind and generous soul. Mm. Everybody loved him. I No one said, I mean, I talked to all these people, they were he was a remarkably kind and giving man. He really was. If you just joined us, we're talking about a project that uh, Dorothy Lang and Ansel Adams did together in 1953. It was published in Life magazine in 1954. Uh, Dorothy Lang had this idea of uh, photographing three Mormon towns, Tokerville, Gunlock, and St. George. And so they did this uh, together. It was their uh, last collaboration. Uh, a lot of drama during the uh, the shooting, some differences, but some tremendous photographs came out of this. Uh, Mark Hedengren has uh, edited a, a version, a book, with these photographs. He's included uh, near the end of the book some updates that he's done of uh, where some of these people and uh, towns' landscapes are today. And Mary Ellen Mark uh, has done the foreword uh, to the book. So Mark, I just wanted to ask you, why do you think the mystery about who took the pictures? Do you think... 
Yeah, Is that, it, Ansel just didn't care, or do you think? I don't know. I mean, that's that's one of the things about this project. In the Ansel Adams archive, there's only four images from three Mormon towns. And in the Lang archive, there's a tremendous amount of negatives. And so I don't, I mean, that's a great question mark. The only thing I can think of that might have happened is that after the project, Adams gave the film to Lang and said, you do post, you do editing. And um, and then they just kind of stayed there. But I don't know. But I'm, I have no evidence for that exactly. But, but do you think he thought of it as just work for hire? Oh, and no. No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, it's, I, I mean, I don't think so, but maybe. Hmm. But it's odd that, that those negatives got so, because some of those are his pictures, for yeah. sure. Oh, certainly. And, you know, it's his intellectual property. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't know. But I, it's, it's certainly a curiosity, and that does not happen very often no, in it our doesn't. history. Especially, yeah. I mean, not with two people that are such sort of iconic figures. No, oh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it's a big question. Uh, Muriel and Mark, I wonder, as, as you look at these photographs uh, from three Mormon towns, what... Um, what, what what emotions do you feel? What do you, what, when what do you get um, from from these people that that were the subjects of the photographs? Well, I mean, I I don't think the the pictures are very emotional. Hmm. I mean, I think they're very they're they're not emotional. I mean, I don't it, it's it's um. I don't think either of them were, were, were... Well, Dorothea Lang was more of an emotional photographer. When she hid it, their pictures are very emotional. But when she's a bystander, like in a lot of these pictures, they're not terribly emotional. She's just sort of standing back and observing like a, a woman holding flowers or the back of a woman's head with a pin in it, a uh, hairpin, or someone holding uh, you know, jars of fruit. So that, that, that's not really emotional. Um, but I th- what you do is I just think it's interesting just looking at the the, the faces and the you know the the horse races and what people did in, in the town and how they dressed and and, and you know the the cars and, and the period of the time in the, in the fifties just to see what it was like. Yeah, well, it's but also important. I can sort of tell whose pictures are whose definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. No. Certainly. And it's also important to point out that Lang's husband was a socialist economics professor at Berkeley University and uh, or UC Berkeley. And I think that informed a lot of what she was kind of going for. You know, she wanted quaint small town, the common working man, uh, you know, those type yeah. of things. Which are yeah, common. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You I do mean, get. It's interesting that it is. It's not it's certainly not the, the bread man, the, the guy in line, the bread line yeah. or, or migrant worker. Mm-hmm. It is what well, the people. There's the people in that town didn't live like that either, you know. No, uh, middle class. Uh, yeah. Dor- Dorothy Lang and I think Ansel Adams too had connections to to people in Utah. Uh, they did. Dorothy Lang, her first husband was Maynard Dixon, who is a prominent Western painter. He lived in San Francisco, but they would spend long periods of time in Southern Utah while he would be painting landscapes and cowboys and Indians and. Uh, he, yeah, so she spent a lot of time here. In fact, her son, who was the writer for the Life magazine project, Daniel Dixon, was boarded out in Tokerville for a period of time why her, why Daniel Dixon and Dorothea Lang would go around traveling. Hmm. So they had connections. Uh, you said, uh, Mark Hengren, that um, you know, you've, you've come upon 
personal reaction that you know of of a descendant i guess a son who who whose parents thought uh, perhaps they came off a little bit too much like mon pa kettle what what was the other react what was more reaction do you have other reactions well there was a number of reactions up that way but i think what people don't realize maybe people who aren't working in the field is that with documentary it's like it wasn't a story about tokerville i mean tokerville is a many faceted place it's got lots of small stories is that when you're organizing a series of 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 photographs you really kind of have to pick and you have to kind of go for something you can't you can't be following every little tangent, and I think people they're they're kind of expect they kind of expect their whole story to be told, but just because of time and interest um, limitations, you can't do that. Mm. And you know, it's like you see this in reality TV where people are reduced to like the villain character, or, mm. you know, the the saint character. But you know, they film for twenty four hours and then they're on screen for ten minutes, so right. it's really cut down. Right. You know, I, I just was picking the two pictures that I think. Well, there are more than two, but there are two that I really love in the book. And w- one is on page thirty-five. I think that's Ansel's picture of the of the uh, Main Street, nineteen fifty-three, Saint George, Utah. It's a beautiful picture. But also uh, on page twelve, the young mother with a son in uh, Gunlock, Utah. I mean, I think one is Dorothea's and one is Ansel's. <laughs> it's hard to tell, but you know. There's some beautiful pictures. You look carefully, at, and you know, in, in the book. And there's another on page 20. People of town, time to leave. Gun luck, Utah. Beautiful woman walking out to her car. Just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And and the with the landscape in the background. Yeah. Yeah, Beautiful. really. Uh, this the, these places are you know as as many places are in the West very much informed by by the landscape. Well, yeah, the way of life. The way of life, yeah. 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 Oh, and the heat. I mean, there's just a lot of things that define life about the environment in southern Utah. I think, Marianne Marco, uh, we uh, we have to let you go here. Um, But I I just wanted to ask you uh, about the effect, the the impact that these two great photographers have had. Uh, Many, many, many would have been influenced by them. uh, How so, I wonder? Well, of course... uh, well, Dorothea Lange as a portraitist, definitely. As a documentary portraitist, you know, with photographing the Depression and, you know, as someone that really showed, you know, the tough lives that, that people have to lead in this country, um, definitely. And Ansel for his landscapes, except I think Ansel Lange was a great portraitist also. I do. And yet to be discovered. That, Some of his great, great yeah. work. So that that part of him, that that part of him, that so, other part of him, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I, I thought that someone should make a book of his, of the work that hasn't really, that's not really known of his. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's one of the opportunities I thought with three Mormon towns, kind of larger. Um, you can comment it. There's some books that aren't directly relate. Some photographs in there that aren't directly related to the Three Mormon Towns projects, but are just right. good examples of Adam's documentary work. Yeah, and it's a really great, great like opportunity. Like the people to walking down the street in in, the, in this book is beautiful. Yeah, and Mark, you have uh, you've included a photograph here. Uh, this is right before your your editor's note. Uh, it's a woman behind a screen door. Oh, yeah. It's just so, a f- phenomenal. It's a woman standing behind a screen door of her house. It's just a phenomenal portrait. I mean, it's what, really what, great. What page is that? Do you remember? Uh, that is uh, page 
62 is that page right? 62 no 92 92 excuse me yeah page 92 it's it's um an older lady behind a screen oh, yeah, door yeah 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 i see yeah. it i see is that is that Dorothea? no that's an ansel adams oh that's ansel's see that's amazing so there there's an example of his portraiture yeah yeah no that's beautiful that's well beautiful. mary and mark we appreciate you taking time to talk about this interesting project Oh, well, thank you. And, um, Mark, thank you for asking me to be part of it. Oh, well, thank you for being a part of it. It was a dream come true. It's nice to talk to you. It was good to talk with you, too. Take Mar- care. I'll take you. care. Bye-bye. Mary Ellen Mark, who uh, wrote the foreword to Three Mormon Towns. Uh, it's a new book out, Ansel Adams and Dorothy Lang's Three Mormon Towns. Interesting photos. Uh, Dorothy Lang had this idea. She knew uh, Utah and uh she wanted to photograph these towns, Tokerville, Gunlock, and St. George. Mark Hedengren has put these together in a book. They appeared in Life magazine in 1954. And then he's updated some of these photographs. We'll talk about that, the process of updating these and where these towns were then, where these people were then, where they are now. He says it's emblematic, representative of where Mormons as a people were then and where Mormons are now. We'll talk more following break. Dr. Zorba Pastor, host of Zorba Pastor on Your Health, which of course you hear Friday mornings at 10 here in UPR, is coming to Utah. Dr. Zorba Pastor will be headlining events in Logan and Moab. Here are the dates to save, October 17th, 18th, and 19th. Dr. Zarba Pastor in Utah, in Logan and Moab. We hope you'll join us. More details coming soon. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Life Directions Coaching of Logan with Coach Pam King. The Goal Getters Group begins September 17th. Participants will identify and strengthen personal resources for accomplishing important goals. Information is at directionslifecoaching.com. And the College of Science at Utah State University, where students step beyond the classroom, participating in advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu slash science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Two of the greatest photographers in American history, uh, Dorothea Lange and Ansel Adams, collaborated in Utah. We're talking about that. Dorothea Lange had this idea to photograph three Mormon towns. Uh, she pitched that to Life magazine. They uh, took the photographs in 1953. The uh, photographs and essay by her son uh, appeared in Life magazine in 1954. Uh, she got permission from Mormon authorities, in part by leaving out the fact that this would appear in Life magazine. Uh, and she enlisted the help of uh, Ansel Adams, her friend. Uh, that friendship was strained in this collaboration uh, through some artistic and political differences, but, uh, of course, that uh, friendship remained uh, to the end of their lives. Uh, this was their last collaboration. And uh, this is a snapshot, pun intended, of uh, Mormon life in these three Mormon towns, Tokerville, Gunlock, and St. George. Mark Hedengren, the editor of this book, which is called Ansel Adams and Dorothea Lang's Three Mormon Towns, has updated some of these places with uh, modern photographs. Very interesting to compare and contrast. And I want to talk a a little bit about that, Mark Hedengren. As you went back, um, you you became familiar with these older photographs, and then you went to these particular places, I guess, tried to find similar 
scenes and people and did updating of photographs. What what were some of the observations you made from, from that updating? Well, and the changes, well, I don't know. There's a lot of similarities. There's a big sense of community in those in St. George and Gunlock and Tokerville, uh, em- emphasis on children. Um, you know, you just see a lot. And But uh, some changes are, you know, like there's um, – Swimwear has changed a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, there's bikinis are common in St. George, whereas like, they probably weren't in the 50s. And, uh, but, you know, and also another big change is like affluence. I mean, really, to Gunlock and Tokerville and St. George are extremely affluent now um, by those standards. They're no longer agricultural communities. There's a major airline based in St. George, you know, uh, Dixie University. And it's, uh, it's, um, it's, uh, they're big places. So it's uh, rich affluence. Lots of abundance, which was a nice change to see, I guess. One of your new photographs uh, shows a gentleman uh, on a, I guess, an inflatable raft at the reservoir. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's got, yeah, he got his beverage, he's got his dog. dog. Uh, that kind of, and then you can contrast that to the photographs that uh, Dorothy Lang and Nancy Adams took. It's much more agricultural. It's much more that life. It looks like the, well, at least from those photographs, looks like people just are, are working hard. I'm sure they had recreation. Yeah, but it be that affluence has come in. Oh yeah, well yeah, just I mean yeah, but the fact that we have like our teenage years where we don't have to work now, whereas before you'd start working on the farm when you were thirteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, there's a lot of things like that. Um, you know, the, the barbecue with three hundred dollars worth of meat from Costco. I mean, mm-hmm. which is crazy. And sometimes I'm asked, um, like the passage of time isn't apparent in the photographs because many of the buildings that were in the original Adams and Lang's photographs have been restored to beyond new quality. I mean, they, they look better than they did in the 50s because there's a lot of affluent people in the area who are really interested in the history mm-hmm. and like they want a pioneer era house. So, um, yeah, so no, it's it's a, they're, all those communities are doing very well and St. George, of course, is growing a lot. So, yeah. You have a photograph taken at night, the lights of St. George, which is, you know, you look at that and you, and you, Get into, that's one of the best ways to to see how much a town has grown. Oh yeah, it looks like a big town, which it, you know, which it has become a lot bigger. Yeah, the similar photographs of that time where where there was there's wall there's just lights. It, there would just be vacant fields uh, in the fifties, like around the St. George Temple. It'd be primarily vacant fields. Mm-hmm. And Tokerville has become just sort of a suburb of St. George. Yeah, it's it's a, yeah. right outside of Hurricane, and yeah. it's just kind of been bled in. There's a lot of big, nice housing developments right outside of. Um, Tokerville, and it's yeah, it's a it's a pretty affluent community, very tight, very close. Yeah. yeah. So it turns out it wasn't dying. No, it wasn't dying. Yeah, <laughs> the whole which area. Was the wasn't. whole the, the caption, I guess, that caused the uproar in Tokerville back yeah. in 1954. Well, agricultural was dying, you know, because yeah. I think it's a lot because of um, re- improved refrigeration techniques and uh, truck farming. So things were able to come from California that previously weren't, and so the economy was shifting. During that time, and that's mm-hmm. probably what they were responding to. Might have been a logical um, extrapolation. Look at the future at that point. Yeah, well, of course, uh, you know, uh, Dixon. What's his name? The, the the person who wrote the essay, Daniel Dixon. Daniel Dixon. I guess he couldn't have known some of these forces that would have. Yeah, and you know that's the interesting about rephotographing it. In the Life magazine article, he they do a lot of forecasting. You know, it's really about the future of these three towns. And that's why, it was, in part, it was so interesting to go back and photograph it. Because they weren't just talking about the then, they were talking about the future. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really kind of ties back to the original work a lot. Oh, I also want to say, I didn't leave, left this out. Ansel Adams, he had a big tie to the state. His children were boarded out in Mount Pleasant, Utah, which mm-hmm. is right outside of Manti. 
And uh, so he would come to the state regularly and had an interest. And he remained friends with the Bishop of Gunlock well after the project, and they would mm-hmm. correspond. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, in fact, it, his first in his first portfolio, um, he put a photograph of the Manti Temple. And there's only like 20 photographs in the portfolio, so that's pretty impressive. Now, this uh, series of photographs, at least the ones that made it into Life magazine that earned this book, Three Mormon Towns, uh, did seem to reflect a religious nature of of the people. There's a lot of photographs, people leaving church, people coming to church, people at church. Yeah, well, I think they're really, they really, I think one thing's, Lang was drawn to. I mean, and Mennonites and Amorites, you know, her original project, project idea of three utopian communities, is she was really drawn to the community and to the women in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. She published a subsequent book later, much later in her life, called um, American Women. And a, a tremendous amount of images in that book come from the Three Mormon Towns Project. Mm-hmm. And I, I think she was really drawn to these mothers. And, um, you know, like, yeah, I don't want to say it. Well, Lang's children have some issues with her, and she was often gone, and she worked very hard. She's very into photography, and that's why she was successful. But she wasn't the best mom, and I think in, that might have been part of the draw as well. You know, Interesting. Just, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you look at this book, there are a lot of uh, photos of women, women and children. Oh, yes, yes. a tremendous say, amount. Yeah. yeah. You've updated at least one of these. Uh, there's a, a mother with two children. And you went back, I don't know which town it was, that mother and two children. Oh, yeah. no. Oh, yeah. Then it's a unique. I mean, it's a particularly young mother, and that's a unique thing you see in Utah. Somebody under the age of 25 with two children is really, would be quite shocking in other places. Mm. And, you know, she, she had been to college and everything. They weren't like accidents. And they were very close in age, close enough that they would both be in a stroller. So she had like a double stroller. And, uh, you know, I love that image. It's just a very touching image. And she was actually a multi-generational St. George resident. Her family goes back there a long ways. And this would not be unusual. You'd, you'd walk down the street and you'd, you know, odds are you'd run into someone who has multi-generations in, in these towns. Oh, yeah, and they would know about it and they'd be proud about it and they'd yeah. tell you about it. Yeah. That's, I mean, to me, that's the unique thing. It's like they just, they're so proud of it being there mm-hmm. and uh, as they should be. Now, you talked to um, a person who was a son of, of someone who, whose photograph appeared and. I guess, or, or talked about the, this uh, this project of Dorothea Langs and Ansel Adams, would this have generally been been known? I, I imagine it would not have been in in these towns because it appeared in Life magazine and uh, and uh, people had their reaction and and then you know the next issue came out and and off you go. Yeah, no, I think it's. I mean, that's one of the great things about having this exhibit, which is currently running at the St. George Museum of Art, is it really gives a chance to kind of reflect on St. George's past. And uh, this was a really monumental moment. I mean, I, the funny thing about this book is that I, I find it actually it gets a more limited response in Utah in a way because people view it as a book about Utah. But this is, I mean, Ansel Adams and Dorothea Lange are two amazingly famous artists, not just photographers, artists who are have hung in all the major museums in the country and internationally. And uh, they, it's, 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 it's important in a much larger sense and so to look at it just limitedly is a mistake. So it's really a wonderful time for St. George to look when two major artists engaged their community, made a work about their town, and to look at it and to really enjoy that kind of attention they received when they ran in a magazine with a circulation of 20 million when the country only had 150 million in population, which means there was a very good chance that almost every, like, 
50 to 70% of the country would see the photographs that mm-hmm. ran in life. Uh, I've neglected to mention that. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, the, this exhibit will be at St. George Museum of Art, right, um, through January? Through January. Through January. So yeah. that's that's an opportunity for people to, to go and see uh, some of these photographs. Oh, wh- what reaction are you getting from from some of these photographs from people oh, today? Well, it's, it's just, I mean, people are, I, I, we just recently had the opening there, and people really enjoy it. I think a lot of art in general is people have a desire to see themselves depicted, you know, and they look for things that uh, represent themselves in the fiction or documentaries they view. It's like when they watch Survivor, they identify with one character in particular, and they see that character as themselves. But this is a unique thing in that you actually have three major, two major artists who did a work literally about your communities, and you can see yourself in it because it's that's the house you lived in. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really a unique thing and something, you know, is, you know, being kind of located in the center of the West, uh, we don't get as often, mm-hmm. you know, as places like maybe New Jersey or, you know, with more population closer to media centers. You mentioned that these photographs would have been seen by a lot of people. Life magazine was you know, one of the big magazines uh, in a time where media wasn't as fragmented as it was today. Do, do we have any record of how, how people reacted generally? Uh, you know, it? that's the thing. I mean, I, the funny thing is, I mean, if you actually look at the story, it's really kind of – you really would have a hard time seeing how somebody could have a problem with it. I'm sure it just ran and most of the country just saw it as another story. You know, I I, I don't actually have much evidence of how people reacted to it nationally. Um, but um, it's it's a I think it's a very positive story. It's a very good story. And um, yeah. I wonder when you went back, of course, you were sort of piggybacking on this original project. Um, but I imagine as anybody who sets out to do a project like this, you would have taken many more photographs than you could include in a book or oh, of course. an exhibit. So as you mentioned before in the program, a photographer has to become an editor. Oh, yes. And and so you're making some decisions about what to leave in, what to leave out. Um, I guess some of that would be conscious, some subconscious. I don't know. And it, you know, some would have an agenda there. I wonder what, what, what your thought process was, what to leave in, what to, what to take out. Well, what to leave in, I, you know, first of all, I really, I want people, I want images to work on their own to a degree, you know, because I, I have a, you know, because not always do you get uh, the luxury of pick, putting 20 images in a book or 80 images in a book. I mean, that's really the ideal for photographers to have a book come out. But when I work for Getty or um, other organizations, well, Getty is, you know, I, I have, I have a t- disassociation. I give it to somebody else and they decide which photographs run, which happened incidentally with the Life magazine article. But uh, so I try to make each image be strong on its own because that's what I can control. And then I want that to build up to something on a whole overarching message, you know, especially with a book where I can do that. And um, yeah, no, it's got, you know, you put kind of a story and, yeah, like at the beginning of this, it begins with a town, a sign of town, the road into Gunlock. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. And a lot of these places, as you mentioned, look the same. You know, uh, St. George has grown a lot. Gunlock especially, I think, would would look pretty similar. Oh, yeah. No, it's a – yeah, no, they're, they're, they're similar in a lot of ways, you know, and different. There's a family there, the Levitts, who have been there for many generations – and then there's new resident, well, you know, relatively new residents um, who come in, 
who are retirees and young families. But uh, yeah, no, it's 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 changed. It's changed quite a bit. So you uh, did the original project, the Mormons. You went around the world taking photographs. Um, and you say this is sort of a microcosm through Mormon towns then and now. What are some of the main themes you see in the, in the way that Mormons as a people have changed? Well, you know, that's interesting that you bring up the book. Like, in a way, like, Three Mormon Towns was the perfect the Mormons. Like, the Mormons, I, I, it, was too, it was too difficult. And the, um, the goal of photographing Mormons all over the world was logistically impossible. I could never truly accomplish that. And so to focus in on three towns, especially after spending two years on that, was really a joy because I had no logistical problems and I had the subject matter, I had the access, I spoke the language. And, um, you know, so I could just focus on the photography and what I wanted to say rather than dealing with um, a trotro driver, you know, or taxi or whatever, getting places. But, um, yeah, so it was really a, a joy to work on it. I mean, changes in Mormons in general, I mean, certainly it's more global, it's more ethnically uh, diverse. Uh, that's one thing that I think comes through with my first book, The Mormons. And again, I came with no agenda. I just showed up to church and photograph who was there. Mm. And uh, yeah, no, there's, there's, a, there's a good deal amount of differences. You know, I mean, I don't have anything to compare it against because mm. I'm not, nobody has really done, uh, did a kind of a global project about Mormonism. Uh, really ever. Yeah. And so that's, a, you know, that's why I did it in part. Well, yours, I guess, can be a baseline for a future Oh, there you go. Someone project, re-photograph project, my yeah, There you amazing. go. <laughs> yeah. uh, just in, in closing here, uh, I want to talk about your, you know, your work, your, your day job. Um, you do photographs for Getty Images, global assignments. Um, but you just get an assignment, off you go. How, how widely do you range? Uh, well, I mean, it can be anything. Like recently I photographed something here in Ogden for NBC, and that was through Getty Images uh, with the Global Assignment Division. And, uh, yeah, no, it's great. I mean, people often ask me, like, what's my favorite thing to photograph? And I can say with all honesty, my favorite thing to photograph is in the state of Utah in a small town. So Three Mormon Towns was really the ideal thing. I mean, I photographed in a lot of other places and a lot of other situations, big events and small events. But to me, I never have more fun than when I'm photographing in rural America. In fact, I did another body of work on swimming holes um, and cliff jumping that I photographed as I worked on other projects around the country. And that that was in a a solo show at the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. But it's just – I just – I don't know what it is, but I'm just really drawn to that. When I'm in a big city, um, like when I was living in New York and stuff, I just – I see very few subjects that I'm actually drawn to. But I'm in rural America, I can photograph forever. And why rural America? I, you know, I don't you? know. I mean, I, I don't know if it was growing up and biking around. And my, my family, we would spend two months out of the year uh, camping because my parents were university professors. Uh, camping, and uh, we had a very small cabin in Washington State. And so I did a lot of swimming, a lot of hanging out with uh, uh, loggers and uh, miners. And, and it, I, it's just a, it's a real part of my upbringing, I think. And, uh, you know, I, I, in a way, I'm rural. So I think it's me finding myself in subject matters where I don't right. identify as much with stuff in big cities. Uh, maybe it's an impression that, you know, where you grew up. You said in your in your note, editor's note, something interesting. You said the Internet has democratized uh, the, the country and has reduced some of the advantages of living in a city. Yeah, well, in a way, I mean, this is, I mean, I'm sure people would object to this. But it, cities are communication apparatuses. And the fact that you could walk up and talk to somebody was very powerful. 
But now we have the internet, and we can get in contact so easily, and we can get Netflix, we can get any book off Amazon.com. It's, I mean, we have these tremendous outlets that even when I moved from New York City back to Provo, I, I didn't feel like I took too much of a cultural hit. I mean, the thing we do lack are the world-class museums, of course, they have there. But, um, no, we certainly have a lot more access to communication information than we ever have. And, uh, and, and that's, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out with cities around the world. Hmm. Well, the book is Ansel Adams and Dorothy Lang's Three Mormon Towns. The editor is Mark Hedengren. And so this book is out now. And you can see these photographs, uh, which were originally taken for Life magazine, appeared in Life in 1954. You can see them at the St. George Museum of Art uh, through... Uh, January 18th. So these are running now. Uh, Mark Hedengren, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here. We're also joined by American photographer Mary Ellen Mark, who's written the foreword to this book. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to uh, take a look at uh, Provo's first Pride Parade with a couple of uh, people who are participating. We'll also talk with a representative from Mormons Building Bridges uh, about a uh, their joining an effort to reduce suicide. That's coming up tomorrow. Hope you'll join me. For uh, producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Commentator Thad Box. To celebrate losing weight, I went from closet to closet filling containers with oversized coats and pants. Then I found a Pendleton Woolen Mill shirt, dark blue with red threads woven to make checks ranging from red to purple to blue. I bought that shirt about 1970. I gained so much weight I couldn't wear it. When I found it, I tried it on. Then I wore it to a meeting where public lands, immigration, and maintaining a suitable food supply was discussed. My shirt's not a red shirt. It's not a blue shirt. It's an American shirt. Its wool came from sheep that graze the public lands. Those same lands provide water, recreation, and other ecological services for our luxurious life. The wool was washed with water from public rivers. Its fabric was woven and manufactured in Oregon by proud workers. I bought it in Logan, Utah, a store owned by an active member of our community. Like our beloved country, my shirt is a product of resolving conflicts through understanding and trade-offs. Every step of the way, there were major differences. Each dispute was required compromise. Hundreds of businesses run by people who loved our country provided goods and services that allowed our people to prosper. No one got everything they wanted, but working together, our families made a living educated their children, and pursued the American dream. Our country became the envy of the world. Our U.S. Constitution is a product of negotiation. Adding the first ten amendments as a Bill of Rights required compromise. So did freeing of the slaves, allowing women to vote, and abandoning polygamy. Most every product of humankind that has lasting value came by finding a middle ground between freedom and human rights. Unless we learn to listen and seek common ground, our food will be less available, more expensive, and will come from overseas. An American woolen shirt will hang in museums. If we keep saying, my way or no way, and refuse to compromise, our future is mighty scary. 
This is Thad Box. Utah Public Radio is proud to support the Child and Family Support Center and thanks all who stopped by our UPR booth at Man vs. Mud last weekend. Thanks to the USU Army ROTC cadets for helping with our dunking machine. And thank you for your continued support of your local public radio station, Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.